This is an AMI podcast. Hi, I'm Fern Nullum, and welcome to Into You, the podcast where we put love under the microscope, shedding light on the do's, don'ts, and nightmare scenarios we find ourselves in while flirting with romance. We don't really know what our body's doing, or even if we do know, we're pretty clueless as to why it's doing it. We all come at dating from a slightly different angle, but we are often faced with very similar situations to shape up to. Take great care if you meet somebody at the gym, because you could really, really fancy them, or you could have just got off the treadmill. I'm somebody who speaks a lot, so (laughs) I'm surprised I've got a boyfriend. (laughs) Dating can uncover things about ourselves we never knew before. So, without further ado, let's get into you. Well, if you're ready and you're happy, then should we jump into the interview? You might as well get cracking, yes. It's me again, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to tuck into another charming chunk of dating psychology here on Into You. And I hope you are too, because today's episode might just blow your mind and make you start looking at people very differently. Have you ever thought back on someone you've liked in the past and wondered, what was the attraction? Or indeed scrutinised your own attractiveness as you tried on a new outfit? Well, I wanted to learn more about what this mystical phenomenon which we call attraction is all about. So I spoke to Dr. James Jackson, a psychology researcher and lecturer on human attraction and how hormones shape our bodies. Later, James shares why attraction is just like riding a double-decker bus. You can see everywhere, you know where the bus is going, you know the destination, but you are not driving that bus. And how much of who we're attracted to is entirely out of our control. Arguably, consciousness is supposed to be one of those things that allows it to help with certain types of decision-making, and then other times it just gets shunted off to one side. But first, I wanted to start with the basics, and at the risk of sounding as though I'd never been attracted to anyone, I asked James how he would define human attraction. Well, as far as the research goes, Fern, I would say that attraction is health. And if people come across as being healthy, then they are often seen as being attractive. There have been a number of studies, for example, where you manipulate photos of people and you ask people to judge how attractive somebody is. But I I remember a classic one from years ago. It was a manipulated image of a woman in a one-piece swimsuit walking out of the sea onto the beach. And people are asked to say how attractive she would be if they manipulated her shape, how sexy she is, how healthy she is, and attractiveness and health were pretty much identical. When you actually look at someone, you've got no real idea what's going on inside. You know, that person could have internal parasites anything and you don't really know so we all start off by making shallow judgments based on the outside and so what does it mean to look healthy well it's really to do with proportions because what you find is that as children grow then we grow in in a particular way based upon the hormone that we're secreting at the time. So say, for example, women mature slightly quicker than boys do. So by the time you hit puberty, girls are still kind of slightly taller than boys. 
And then all of a sudden, when boys hit puberty and they start secreting lots and lots of testosterone, it means that they get significant torso growth. So what you would find then, if you have if you have like an adult woman and an adult man and they're the same height and they'll look each other in the eye, if they're sat down, he'll be looking down on her slightly with his larger torso and her legs will be like splayed under the table because, you know, our, our bodies are different shapes. So what you find that when a boy grows at puberty, he grows another 40 centimetres on average, which is quite a lot if you think about it, and it's all torso. It gets broader. When muscles are used in the presence of testosterone, they get a bit larger. So you end up with a more male body shape. And women with a lack of testosterone don't grow their torso, and it's just legs. So as the body shapes start to differ, you actually start to see attraction and good health in things you don't have. So, for example, everyone's got elbows. I mean, my elbow's not particularly sexy. <laughs> Nobody else's elbow is either. Because I've got elbows, you've got elbows. No one cares about elbows. But otherwise, it's the shapes you have that the other sex doesn't. This is heterosexual, by the way. But the shapes you have that the other sex doesn't. And what we perceive as healthy is really strong secretion of sex hormones. Such so a female shape, more estrogen ovulation, strong male shape, more testosterone at puberty. Basically, almost the more feminine or the more masculine you look, we're attracted to that. Yeah, it's universal across cultures. There are some things that are quite cultural and don't track in different places in the world. But you will find if a woman has a more feminine face, stereotypically, she's seen as being more attractive. And that is based on a lack of testosterone at puberty and less bone growth in the, in the face and the skull. It sort of seems like there's not a whole lot we can actually do about that. You kind of either got it or you haven't. Is that true? I mean, you start thinking about, certainly with a lot of it being body proportion, it's about when you start getting into flattering clothes, when you emphasise your strengths and you emphasise the ratios. You also have one big driver of attraction on the research shows, symmetry facial symmetry. Now, what you find with this is that as we grow, we don't really grow continuously. We kind of grow in spurts. You know, when you get like a chubby little toddler, then suddenly they jump up a couple of inches, it gets a little bit thinner, and then they put on weight, and then they spurt up again. And we do this all the way through childhood. What you also find is that the two sides of the body don't necessarily grow at the same speed either. So, but they catch up with each other. Now, imagine in childhood, if someone had, I mean, granted, we've got a global pandemic, but put COVID to one side, colds, measles, mumps, something, and you'd always find these diseases tend to affect one side more than the other. So by the time we reach adulthood, we're slightly out of symmetry. And the more out of symmetry that you are, it means to someone looking at you that you probably had more diseases as a child, which suggests you might be less healthy. Rather than having a weak immune system, you might just have been exposed to more things. You know how some children get extra vaccinations and some don't, mm. you know, and there are lots of other factors in play. Maybe the truly beautiful Hollywood A-list types are symmetrical, but I'm not. <laughs> I know. <laughs> One of my eyes slightly bigger than the other. Or what it really means is that the skull on one side is slightly thicker than it is on the other, and it differentiates us. But there are things you can do to make yourself seem more symmetrical. 
even if it's down to stubble in the beard or particularly effective for women with like longer hair that's symmetrical on both sides or long earrings etc but it just helps with the shape so it's about presenting your best self in the most flattering way and that ends up with things like symmetry so you're actually declaring again your physical health and your good genes creating that illusion of symmetry to try and get up there with the a-listers yeah, that's what most of us have to do, I'm afraid. <laughs> we think it's literally just we're making these decisions and we know what we're doing when we do this. But actually, there's so many factors at play that we don't even realise are happening. Oh, it's true. It's true. I, I, I tell my students, because when I lecture on a lot of this stuff, you can see some of, the, some of them at the front are not necessarily <laughs> being convinced at the start. But the metaphor I like to use in explaining that we're actually we're a bit like a double-decker bus. And you're on the top deck of a double-decker bus. You can see everywhere. You know where the bus is going. You know the destination. But you are not driving that bus. The sense of the underlying mechanism in the brain does this thing. I mean, I drive to work every morning when I go into Leeds. I can't imagine. I can't remember the amount of time when I've got to work with very little memory of how I got there. (laughs) Because these things are kind of underlying processes that just happen arguably consciousness is supposed to be one of those things that allows it to help with certain types of decision making and then other times it just gets shunted off to one side the more you think about it the scarier it gets yeah (laughs) I wonder because we talked about different factors haven't we we talked about the unconscious sort of physiological factors how much of attraction is conscious how much are we actually thinking about it consciously there isn't really a lot of connection between upper thought processes and the more primal stuff. So generally, there are a lot of ascending pathways, etc. These things factor into our decisions. But unless you think about it or experimentally, now I know about this stuff. I, I'm thinking about it when I look at people. Yes. But otherwise, you're just not aware it's there. It's simply evolved cues. And if it's the one thing that's worth saying, and I always say this to my students as well, every single one of our ancestors survived. And while that might sound a little bit daft, it means they all survived long enough to have children before they were carted off by a mammoth or, or whatever else it might have been. So we all have these rules of thumb that are hardwired into us. And because they're obviously so obvious, we don't even realise they're there. Wow. And before we were talking about symmetry. Mm-hmm. It might be interesting to know that some research showed that not just facial symmetry, but in terms of body symmetry, without getting into too much detail, you'd be aware that, well, I can't think of a better way to put it for the podcast, but a woman's cleavage tends to be a little bit asymmetrical. One tends to be bigger than the other, yes? Yes. When a woman is ovulating, she's at her most confident, her most symmetrical, her greatest self-esteem, you know, it... It's all there at that time, at that moment. So it seems as though our bodies are trying to help us out. You have no idea what's going on half the time, but these things matter. So there's arguments in a way that when a woman is more confident, there have been various studies on this sort of thing. Women don't tend to be aware of it, but they carry themselves differently. They are more confident. Men detect this. See, her has been more attractive. You find when a woman is actually ovulating, there are studies that actually show she's more likely to go to parties, she's more likely to go clubbing. Boyfriends at the time, they engage in what, what the journals call mate-guarding techniques. 
and tend to be nicer and give her more presence and things. Because all of a sudden she's looking confident and flirty and men tend to panic a little bit without really knowing what's going on. Uh-huh, that nature's always at play. So we've talked a little bit about how our bodies can help us, but what about when our bodies turn against us? Can they fool us sometimes into making us believe we like someone or we feel a certain way because of a certain reason, but actually it's got nothing to do with that at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's 86 billion neurons in the brain, the billion neurons in the spine, we have a tremendous amount of information that comes in about the world around us. But the new ones actually working out what's going on inside our own body, there are vastly fewer. We don't really know what our body's doing. Even if we do know, we're, we're pretty clueless as to why it's doing it. So just to take for an example, if you have one of those buttons on a wire and you're just after press that button and your heart beats, People are very bad at it. No idea what's happening normally. But the people who are more aware of their heartbeat actually end up being more prone to clinical anxiety because they sense when their heart's beating faster and think, why is my heart beating faster? Oh, my God, I must be anxious. And it pulls people off into these emotions. So the classic study that I like, there have been lots of variations on this, one from the 1970s, and it's called Love on a Suspension Bridge. This bridge in Vancouver that goes over this kind of tourist thing, it's got planks, but ropes down each side. It's a swingy bridge. It's wide enough for a couple of people to pass. And it goes over a 200-foot drop to a river below. And they had this study where they had this woman trying to do you know, doing scientific research. So they gave her a clipboard and a pen to make her look more scientific. And she interviewed men when they were halfway across that bridge. And she interviewed other men just before they got on that bridge. But the fact is, anybody on that bridge will at the very least have an elevated heart rate because it's a 200-foot drop and it's a swingy bridge. I'm making it sound a little bit more fragile than it is. This is something that you'd be a bit tense of. And what you find is that when men are completing these questions for her, they're on this bridge, their heart is beating much faster while they're talking to her. And they rate her later had been more attractive than the men who talked to her before they got on the bridge. Is what we call misattribution. Their heart's beating faster because they're on a bridge but they think their heart's beating faster because they're talking to her. And if they're talking to her and their heart's beating faster, she must be attractive. So the, the joke I make to my students when I talk about this is the idea that you should take great care if you meet somebody at the gym because you could really, really fancy them or you could have just got off the treadmill. But hey, maybe that means you should go to the gym because then everyone will think they really, really fancy you even though they've actually just come off the treadmill. Ha! Huh? <laughs> yeah, so it, it's that kind of thing because we're quite bad at working out our emotion because people think we have an emotion, let's affect our body, but it's the opposite. You look at what your body does and then you decide to have the emotion after that. The other classic example is embarrassment. How do you know you're embarrassed? You blush. The capillaries in the cheek open up, you feel the heat and you go, oh my God, I'm embarrassed. But what caused that? People don't realise it. So people believe emotions are backwards. It's actually your body does something and then you try to guess what that emotion should be. And then you have that one. So people make mistakes all the time. 
As I listened to James speak, I started to wonder how many times I'd misinterpreted my own physiological anxiety and fear as a rush of excitement and that elusive spark we're told we should always be searching for. I wanted to know how others were able to judge their own attraction. So, as is the protocol of most scientific studies in 2022, I put out a post on social media and here are a selection of my favourite answers. The sentence reads, I know I'm attracted to someone when... Finish the sentence. Alice, they have me grinning like a Cheshire cat and I physically have to try and stop myself to avoid scaring them. Yeah, I've never been the best at playing it cool either, Alice. Henry, when they can talk about the most boring things but hold my interest for hours. Uh Uh-huh, well, that either means this podcast has really juicy topics or I'm extremely attractive, one of the two. Danielle, I'm open to sharing my dessert with them. Now, I'm not sure I've ever reached that point with anyone, Danielle, so that's a compliment. And Nick, I know I'm attracted to someone when I constantly make a fool of myself because I can't concentrate on anything else. Oh, absolutely. Masking stupidity for sentiment? That's something I'm always in the market for, Nick. James had put into focus how so much of our behaviour when it comes to attraction is totally unconscious and unclear to us while we're playing it out. We can be drawn to someone like a mesmerised moth to a physiological flame and then wonder why we get burned. We can feel magnetically pulled to a potential mate without having the faintest idea what forces are at play, even if the person to whom we desperately cling turns out to be as cold as a fridge. And talking of fridges, I was hungry to learn more about what other unconscious factors can influence our emotions when dating. And the last of your collection the other day, it's got facial feedback hypothesis. It's actually got weak, consistent support for it. If people watch cartoons with the pencil in their mouth held between their teeth, it kind of forces them to smile. So those people thought that they enjoy the cartoons more. And you find there were certain therapies to help with things like depression that ask people to smile more. And if you can feel your face smiling, then you end up being happier. If people take Botox injections, So into the forehead, you know how it's the inhibitory muscle thing. It stops them from being able to make the frowny movements above their eyes. So they actually report less negative mood because their face can't move and it can't make frowny shapes. So I don't know whether part of that could be the self-esteem of looking good, but they control for these sort of things in the research. And it shows if you can't make the face, you can't feel the emotion. Man, so we've got to be careful what we do with our faces on dates because that could trick us. Our faces are controlled by the different hemispheres of the brain. So the right side of my body is controlled by my left hemisphere and the language centres are in the left hemisphere. So when we speak, most people move the right side of their mouth more than the left because that's got the direct connection to what it is that we're trying to say in the first place. So when you talk to someone for the first time, the more you talk, you're actually showing yourself of being slightly less symmetrical. It's tricky to be involved in the conversation and to listen and to be part of it, but not speak too much, which is hard when you're nervous. 
Definitely. I'm somebody who speaks a lot, so <laughs> I'm surprised I've got a boyfriend. <laughs> so we hear about these stereotypes when it comes to attraction, and we often hear that men are more physically attracted, they care more about looks, whereas women perhaps are more emotionally attracted and they care about an amazing mind or somebody who's really sweet and caring. But are those stereotypes actually true in practice? Yes and no. Yes, there's certainly the case that people find an ideal version of themselves more attractive. So you tend to end up with someone who has very similar beliefs. So it helps that you can talk about things. The classic one is actually religion. The idea whatever your religious beliefs are, you tend to be better partnered with somebody who shared those beliefs or shared those lack of beliefs. It's all hardwired in. You have this difference for women between whether or not they're wanting just a short-term relationship or a long-term relationship. If you take the long-term relationship angle, the very interesting place is the online dating space. And arguably, it lends itself very well to scientific research. Because when you think experimentally, you want to try to compare something with a baseline. There have been lots of studies. When you actually you put a dating profile up of like a fake person, mm. And then you wait and you see how many hits it gets. People try to engage in conversation and then you take it down. You wait a couple of months and then you put it back up again and you change one thing to see if it actually gets more hits or not. And as we've said, if a female profile had the same woman with a more attractive picture, it will get more hits. Whereas the single thing that actually makes the change that encourages more women to respond to a male profile, believe it or not, is income. And that is supposed to link not so much to emotional support, but stability. Because on some level, when a couple have a baby, a woman really needs to make the right decision there. Because you've only got a couple of hundred viable eggs, child rearing is pretty arduous, and if you pick the wrong guy, off he goes, then she literally left holding the baby, isn't she? <laughs> So in terms of long-term relationships, women have a preference more for a man who's able to support them. A lot of animals, for example, dependent on the species, once they've mated, the male disappears, or they build a nest together, what we call like post-copulatory behaviour, when the male stays or the male doesn't. So it's that sense of stability and the emotional aspect is part of that. The man preferred when menstruating is likely to be the one that provides the most emotional support, whereas the high facial masculinity guy have got good genes, but they don't tend to be in the same package. Right, so you can't have it all. Mm. So it's sin where if a man secretes lots of testosterone, then he'll have more bones in his face, a stronger jawline than I've got. Deeper voice. Women find a deeper voice very sexy. Broader shoulders. Now, it's very important for men looking at women because it doesn't matter what size a woman is. If her waist is 70% of the diameter of her hips, it's seen as most optimal levels of estrogen. And it also actually means a wider birth canal. And, you know, you're less likely to have birth complications, which before forceps and before hospitals was a very, very important thing. It seems that women tend to prefer men who have a waist-hip ratio of about 0.9. So the waist is only slightly tucked in compared to the hips. That 
is supposed to indicate good testosterone and it's linked with broad shoulders as well. But when a man has that level of testosterone to get that shape in the first place, it also means he's healthier because he's got lots of testosterone. The male reproductive system works much better. He's less likely to get prostate cancer. He's less likely to get testicular cancer and will pass on that wonderful good health to his children, Mm. which is the aim. But as you always get in nature, most hormones have two purposes. So while we're talking about testosterone as being about fertility, it's also about aggression. And it's about the alpha male seizing territory and access to females. So the most facial masculine guy, it got the most fantastic genes, but he'd also tend to be much more interested in short-term relationships, he's less likely to marry, and he's more likely to divorce. Whereas the man with less testosterone is less sexy, is unfortunately possibly less fertile, but will stay the course and provide the emotional stability. And most women have to decide it's one or the other. There are very few men out there who have all the characteristics necessary. We're all in the middle somewhere, really. Those are two extremes. Wow, what a choice to make. Yeah, when you do research into these things, we often do a lot with body silhouettes, which silhouette is most attractive. So the thing that hangs true is that 0.7 weighted ratio that's supposed to indicate optimal levels of estrogen when a woman was going through puberty to have that female shape. And it does not matter what size the woman is, it's the ratio that's the important thing. But while you think you might find that we've been related into this going, oh God, I'm not, not 0.7. But what you actually find is that men will find a woman to be attractive if her basic ratio is between about 0.6 and up to 1.1. So even when the waist is actually larger than the hips, it's outside of the extreme. But what's interesting is that if the woman's weighted ratio has got quite a long way to go above perfection to still be attractive, it only has to drop down very slightly before universally men find that body shape to be unattractive. Because if you get down to a weighted ratio of 0.6, you enter a lack of body fat, you enter clinical underweight and things like eating disorders and anorexia, et cetera. And when a woman is very, very, very thin and doesn't have the resources to bring a child to term, then she stops menstruating. If you go below that ratio a certain bit, a woman is not fertile. But if a woman goes above that, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8, 0. 0.9, 1, 1.1, it's still fine. You often find with these things, that broad ranges we all operated that are great. But the really beautiful people are spot on the perfection bit. <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to bring this up with you, James. You keep mentioning that you're not in this super attractive category. You do realise this is a podcast and no I one know, would know. know. <laughs> you're missing a trick. I'm much better in person. But it's <laughs> one of those ones where I, I just don't want to point out that I'm so oh, I'm beautiful. Look at you all. You know, we're talking about maybe... of people hit these numbers, like the Liz Hurley's and the Henry Cavill's hit these body shapes. And the rest of us are moving, we're slightly further away from it, but we're still operating well. And we're still found to be attracted by other people. 
So it's, it's hope for everyone, really. I loved how James had demolished the myth that it's only the most attractive people who can bargain on bagging a partner. Overall, he had given me a sense that we must all stop being so hard on ourselves when it comes to our own attractiveness and start to focus on what we do have to offer rather than what we are lacking. Next time, James talks more about what online dating has done to attraction. The person who came up with Match.com in an interview said something along the lines of how I think I've ruined dating. And poses the question of whether something as seemingly superficial as attraction could one day end up saving your life. Are you living longer if you're married simply because of the joys of marriage? Or is it because you've got someone sat opposite you every day to remind you to take your heart medication? As always, I want to hear from you. How much of attraction do you think is in our control? And how do you respond when your attraction is not reciprocated by someone else? Leave me a comment and let me know. For now, though, you've been listening to Into You with me, Fern Lullum. Special thanks to my guest, Dr. James Jackson, whose links will be in the show notes. Also to Joshua Holland and Sam Robinson for technical support. And to the manager of AMI, Andy Frank. Leave me your feedback at feedback at ami.ca. If you liked what you heard, make sure to search for Into You on your favourite or indeed any podcast distributing platform and subscribe for more episodes coming your way on the first Thursday of every month. And until then, the next time you feel those butterflies, just think twice, okay? Okay.